Hello everybody and welcome to this Innovation Forum webinar. I'm Ian Welsh and I'll be your host for the next hour or so. Today is the latest of our Big Debate webinar series and we're going to be considering the future for meat and thinking about the best options for human health and for the planet. Such issues formed part of the discussion at Innovation Forum's Future of Food conference in Amsterdam last week and we'll do so again at the US Future of Food event in Minneapolis at the end of the month. Certainly, there has been increasing evidence that we have no choice but to move away from our current land and carbon intensive meat industry. But what are the alternatives? And can protein from non-animal sources provide healthy diets for all? And moreover, how do we cut through media bias and counterproductive polarisation to find a sensible route forward? Now, there's a huge amount to talk about and delighted to be joined by three expert panellists to lead the discussion. We have Sam Worth, who's Executive Director at the US Roundtable for Sustainable Beef. We have Pierre Ederer, who's Founding Director at Goal Sciences and Programme and Science Director at the Global Food and Agribusiness Network. And we have Andy Shovel, who's Founder and Co-CEO of this. Welcome to you all. Sam, let me turn to you first. Please give us the two-sentence introduction to the US Roundtable for Sustainable Beef. And then I'd be very interested indeed to hear what you see as the future for the beef sector and what a more sustainable supply chain looks like. Sam. Thanks so much, Ian, and thank you to the Innovation Foreign team for having us here today. Really happy to be able to have the opportunity to speak to you all about what we do at the Roundtable um, and where we see the future of beef going. So we are a multi-stakeholder initiative. We were developed in 2015 with the mission to advance support and communicate continuous improvement in sustainability of the U.S. beef value chain. So we span today over 144 members um, across the beef value chain, including civil society, allied industry. Last year, we launched our sustainability goals, which center around six high-priority indicators of sustainability for the roundtable. Um, and the bulk of our efforts right now are really focused on benchmarking and measuring progress against those goals and helping to support uh, research and initiatives that are going to help us further advance sustainability. With all that said, <laughs> we also are highly engaged and involved in the Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef. Um, as part of that, um, we have 12 national roundtables that are part of a collaborative um, initiative to advance beef sustainability internationally. Uh, being part of that initiative and um, leading the U.S. Roundtable for Sustainable Beef, um, we really see that the future for beef is, uh, future for food and has to include beef. Um, and a lot of that centers around a couple of key components. The first being that we're going to need more than 60% more food by 2050 to feed almost 10 billion people. And animal source foods must be a part of that. And taking it kind of a step further, the majority of land used for agriculture is um, marginal land. So it's land that cannot be used to grow other crops. Um, it's too hilly. There's not enough water, poor soil. Um, a lot of factors that come into play where we can't grow normal crops, but we can produce cattle on that land. Um, and so globally, we have an opportunity to leverage um, that land and um, work to enhance our productivity of beef production on those lands to help better feed a growing global population. Perhaps give us a little bit more um, detail then on how the round tables work. What are you doing specifically? What are the kind of the individual things that you're doing that really push forward this, uh, this agenda, the sustainable uh, beef agenda? At the U.S. Roundtable, we are, like I mentioned, we have 145 members to date uh, 
about 50% of our membership are actual producers and or state producer organizations. So we really work heavily with producers throughout the U.S. beef um, supply chain all over the country to help to better um, inform on positive grazing practices that are going to help to um, enhance soil carbon sequestration. Um, we also deal a lot with um, or work a lot to kind of provide more assistance and education around um, breeding, uh, animal genetics that can kind of help us advance and create more efficient animals. Um, and similarly at the global scale with our 12 national roundtables, um, each of those roundtables do similar work where they're working really heavily with um, conservation organizations in their regions, as well as with producers to really help um, get them get producers connected to resources and tools and technology that are going to help advance their production systems. Thank you. And what about animal welfare? Where does that come into the whole uh, whole picture here? That is a major component of everything we do. Um, I think it's something that um, many people kind of uh, have maybe more negative uh, thoughts on animal welfare when it comes to beef production. But um, we like to talk about, you know, a, a healthy animal, uh, an animal with a high state of welfare is a productive animal, right? So it's in everyone's best interest, including the animal, that that animal has uh, the highest quality of life it possibly can. Um, and, and we have both at the U.S. and global roundtable levels, we have working groups and goals set specifically to help advance animal welfare and well-being. Okay, thanks very much indeed. Pierre, let me turn to you now. Please give us a quick context setting bit of introduction to yourself and then perhaps you can give us some of your views on what you think is the future for meat consumption more generally and how the role of alternative proteins in feeding the world's population will develop. So I'm uh, the uh, director of the Goal Sciences. Goal Sciences stands for Global Observatory on Accurate Livestock Sciences. And it's supposed to be exactly that. It's an observatory uh, for uh, curating what my team and my colleagues consider to be accurate scientific evidence about the role of livestock. I'm also guest editor and co-initiator of the Animal Frontiers a special issue publication that just came out in the middle of April with the title The Societal Role of Meat and the corresponding Dublin Declaration, which has been signed by now by more than a thousand scientists from around the world, which is a statement by scientists calling for a balanced view of the, on the perspective of animals in a modern future global food system. I want to briefly say where I'm coming from. So my training is I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not an ecologist. I'm not an environmentalist. I am a financial economist and in fact, specialized on innovation and technologies. So that's my origin. That's, that's my uh, scientific training. And so when I look at livestock, meaning an animal that humanity uses for its purposes, I look at that livestock animal as a technology that may feel very cold-hearted, but that's what we do as economists. We, we look at production factors. And from a, this kind of a very cold view at this technology of what a livestock animal does, I cannot help but to observe that this is so far, and as far as we can tell for the most foreseeable future, the most efficient technology to provide 
essential and important nutrients to a human food. So we as human people, we depend on nutrients that come in the form of a dominated carnivorous diet. So a, a diet that is rich in meats and rich in eggs and rich in dairies. And that is because we are evolutionarily, our evolution programmed us for that. And so the question is, how can we get this portfolio of nutrients onto the table of, of, of a human person on this planet, of all the 10 billion people that we're going to be in 2050? And so we need to look at what is the most efficient technology of being able to do that. And livestock animals are the most efficient technology. They take very low value commodity plant material uh, that is of low nutritional value to people and upcycle these, they, they upcycle these uh, low value commodities into high valuable, high nutritious foodstuffs for human people. And in the process, while they do that, they even generate very important natural fertilizer that is fundamentally important for any kind of agriculture, whether uh, for, for plant agriculture. And if it's done right, uh, they also, uh, livestock uh, uh, maintenance practices will also enhance and preserve the biological diversity that we all depend on. So uh, from, a, from an economist's point of view, I see a, a, a triple win. Uh, it, it is an, a technology that upcycles low-value commodities into high-value foodstuffs. It is a technology that provides us with natural fertilizer that we depend on for, for plant-based agriculture. And it creates enormous ecological services in terms of maintaining and enhancing biodiversity, uh, water management, and so on, if done right. Well, the obvious question is, uh, what is the right way to go about it? When you say done right, what do you mean by that? There is no single answer, right? So different climatic regions, different uh, biological zones, different socioeconomic conditions of, of uh, human settlement create different kind of environments. So for instance, here in, in high, densely populated Switzerland, where I live, the ruminant population, the, the cattle animals, are fundamentally important to maintain the ecological balance of the Alps without having a ruminant taking care of the grasslands in the Alps or in the pre-Alpine regions, we would experience be experienced an ecological catastrophe. But that's very specific to the Alps. But as you look closer into particular practices, you will find that many areas of the world, they depend on sheep, other depend on camels, other depend on uh, uh, highly intensified animal productions through poultry and, and so on. So the world is an amazingly diverse place with so many different production conditions, so many interesting animal species that can do different things. And so there is no one-size-fits-all answer. We need to find the right animal with the right production condition for the right circumstance. Thank you very much. Again, lots of we can come back to there. Andy, thanks for your patience. Give us the two-sentence introduction to this. 
And then perhaps you can tell us how you see the transition away from meat-based meat protein entirely developing. And it'd be great to hear where this process is happening fastest and why. Andy. Yeah, so uh, good to be here. Thanks for the invite. I'm Andy Shovel. I run uh, This, which is the UK's fastest growing meat alternative brand. So we make plant-based meat alternatives like plant-based bacon, sausages, burgers, that kind of thing. In terms of the transition, I might start with the why. I was listening to my co-panelists employing uh, all of my discipline not to unmute and start to challenge some of the things that were said. I think starting with the real fundamental reasons why it's so necessary to transition away from uh, getting our protein from animals. Both of my co-panelists alluded to uh, the challenges around hunger in the world and, and the growing population and how we're going to feed those people. So I suppose the most obvious place to start is that um, whilst we can't quite feed the circa 8 billion people in the world, we successfully feed 80 billion animals in the world. So the animals are catered for fine, but the humans uh, sadly not, because around 10% of the world is in what WHO would consider to be like critical hunger crisis. That's quite baffling to start with. And then trickling down from that most fundamental point, I think, um, you could talk about how around 75% of the world's antibiotics supply is used for animals and only 25% for humans, which is obviously absurd. Animal agriculture takes up about 77% of the world's farmlands, but supply only 17% of the world's food supply. And I suppose perhaps the most hard-hitting fact which should implore us all to move away from animal protein, is that around 18% of the annual greenhouse gas emissions come from animal agriculture. And to put that in context, that's actually more than every single form of transport combined, all planes, trains, boats, uh, and cars. So I think the reasons to move away from animal agriculture are extremely substantial and extremely compelling. And in my opinion, the only reason to, uh, in our long-term future, stay with this level of animal agriculture is because it tastes kind of good and KFC is really succulent and delicious uh, and so on. So, so I think that's the only really compelling argument. As for what it could look like and my, my opinion on the transition away, obviously I think part of the uh, transition, especially in, in the nearer term, could come from plant-based meat alternatives. I was listening to my uh, co-panelists mention that uh, uh, a few times about the, the low-value commodities that animals are fed, which in my opinion is actually factually incorrect. They're, they're fed perfectly excellent value, complete amino acid chain containing proteins like soybeans, which we use as a human society, uh, you know, massively in, in lots of different foodstuffs. Um, and they're also fed corn and, and lots of other things that would go straight into humans uh, instead of going into animals to then be metabolized and wasted on energy. Um, so I think meat alternatives, of which we produce using soy, uh, among other things, uh, play a role in helping people transition away. Um, I think there's lots of exciting um areas of development around, uh, say, lab-grown meat, which could could turn out to be a more sustainable and more ethical uh, alternative to, um, uh, you know, the, the traditional forms of animal agriculture. Um, it's a bit TBC, I think. There are some big hurdles to structurally overcome for that area. Um, but also, I think one thing we're going to work on as, as a brand and probably as an industry is, you know, protein 2.0, I might call it. I mean, not tofu in the traditional tempeh of which they of course have a role and not meat alternatives which do have their downsides it's more just like using the know-how that we have now in terms of food technology to create products which are actually whole foods 
high in nutrition and nutritional density. And we can use natural flavor technology as well to enhance those and, and tech, we can texture those. So it's something we're going to work on in the longer term for sure is, is kind of not a meat alternative, but also not a traditional um, meat free type of protein. I think that's an exciting area, which I'm keen to dive into actually. And then of course, finally, in terms of the transition away, I think that um, the enormous amount of farmland that we use for animal agriculture, I think we should look to rewild that and restore the world to the ecological balance that we had before we developed this insatiable hunger for animal protein by the billion. And sorry, I said finally, and I lied. I'm really sorry. There's, there's one more piece, which is that uh, in terms of our diet, I think it would be remiss of me not to mention the role that, that more traditional whole foods should be playing in our diets. And of course, I'm talking about plant-based whole foods. And in terms of how do we get the nutrition uh, without animals, I think that's been proven now beyond any doubt by you know the fact that, that in the UK, for instance, I think about 6% of our population are uh, vegans and probably mostly thriving. I think Lewis Hamilton's a vegan. He's not doing too badly on the health front. And I personally am a vegan. I ran the London Marathon in three and a half hours last week or week before last. I'm doing okay. I'm not coming keeled over. I think we're okay on the nutrition front. And there's lots of complete amino acids in lots of plant foods. Animals can't actually make protein. They only eat it and then they metabolize it before us. But I could go on and on, but I don't want to take the floor for too long. <laughs> Thanks, Andy. Again, lots to come back on for, the, for sure. Uh, Peter, I see you put your hand up. You want to come back on something Andy said? Yeah, I, I, I want to uh, contest some of the statements made about the environmental impact of animals or the state of security, uh, food security around the world. Because if, uh, as, as I read these numbers, I interpret them quite differently. First of all, the statement that out of the 8 billion people that we have today, uh, already 10% or 12% are not sufficiently fed and experience hunger. That is uh, undoubtedly true. But the reason is not because animals are taking their food away. The reason is because those roughly 900 million people are living in areas of civil conflict and insecure political conditions, places like Somalia or Myanmar or Sahel Africa. That is the reason why we experience hunger for calories. That is not because animals are eating that food away. We could be easily be feeding those additional 900 million people with enough calories. However, we have somewhere between 4 and 5 billion people in the world, at the very least 3 billion, kind of depends on how you count them, but at the very least 3, probably 5 billion people who do not have enough nutrition, who do not have the right amount of high-value micronutrients and protein enrichment in, the, in their food. So it's that hidden hunger that is the real nutrition crisis in the world. And that is very difficult to uh, plug in with or, or to meet with vegan or vegetarian diets only. Uh, it has been proven and shown over and over again that vegan diets and vegetarian diets are far more expensive than a animal source food diet. And so for the majority of the global population, it is simply not a viable option to be feeding themselves like Lewis Hamilton does. Also on the question that animals take up vast majority of the farmland, farmland that could otherwise be rewilded, that may in places be right, but most of the land that is utilized by animals, particularly the ruminants, is land that is not available for agricultural activity. By far, 
I mean, we're, we're talking about 90% of that land could otherwise not be utilized by agricultural by agricultural opportunity because, as Samantha was saying before, it's either too wet or too dry or it's sitting in a floodland or it's too hilly or whatever. It can only be utilized by animals. But it's even worse. If it was not utilized by animals, it would indeed have to be rewilded. But rewilding is not a viable option to the degree that we'd like to have that because that rewilding would have to include predator animals as well, bears, wolves, tigers, lions, and so on. And those predator animals do not mix well with the densely populated planet. I mean, we cannot turn back the, the, the clock on the fact that we have 10 billion people and our human species does not go well with predators, with wild predators. So uh, this is, I think, an illusion to say we can take the livestock animals off these lands, rewild them, bring back the lions, bring back the, the, the tigers and the wolves and the bears and have a happy coexistence with human species. Not really feasible. Okay, thanks, Pierre. Sam. Thank you. Just to kind of reemphasize on a couple of those points, um, more than two thirds of the land that we use to grow food cannot, to, to Pierre's point, be converted into anything to, cr to produce crops right? Um, it is that marginal land I mentioned where it is only suitable for livestock production if we're going to be making food off that land at all. Um, and we run into issues where we lose biodiversity and we lose some of the benefits that we're getting in that land if we take cattle off of it. Um, so well-managed grazing land is actually a huge opportunity as a carbon sink and a biodiversity enhancer. Um, especially on the, the beef cattle production side. Um, and then I think something that's just important to note as we talk about plant sourced versus animal sourced foods, the majority of human diets today are, are consisting of plant sourced foods, right? That's, um, that consists of most of the energy in our diets around the world, doesn't matter where you're at. Um, but what we do see when we look at, um, there's been studies done to look at um, you know, low to middle income countries at a glance, they might meet their per capita protein consumption daily requirements. But when you correct that protein consumption for the digestibility of the protein, so if those are primarily animal sourced, or sorry, prim primarily plant sourced foods, which they are, um, when you correct for the digestibility of that protein, only about a quarter of those low to middle income countries actually meet their nutritional requirements for protein consumption. Um, and when you further correct for the actual utilizability of that animal or plant source protein, none of the countries will meet that requirement. And that's because they are so heavily skewed to the plant-based side. Um, you run into issues of, when I say utilizability, I mean that there are com competing compounds that exist in a plant-based protein that actually tie up that protein and make it undigestible for a human, not utilizable for your nutritional needs. Um, and there are several studies that um, we could reference that also demonstrate the value of having animal source foods, especially in early life, right? Um, to, to provide just an egg a day to a child makes a massive amount of difference in, um, in preventing stunting of their brain and physical development. And it sets them up for a better life and better brain development, better brain function down the line. Thank you very much, Sam. Okay, Andy, briefly, please. I do want to go to these questions. 
Yes, so so it's been mentioned a few times by um, uh, both other panelists uh, that a lot of the world's uh, agricultural land could only be used uh, for animals. Therefore, we should keep farming animals. And I'm not sure my point, which is fact, is landing. The vast majority of the protein, the plant-based protein that we grow on Earth, goes to animals. So the land you're talking about is really academic. It doesn't matter whether we can't use it to grow more plant protein because we already would be able to grow more than enough by multiples of plant protein if we stopped feeding it all to animals for them to then just keep growing. I mean, the inputs versus outputs when you think about animal agriculture, it depends on the species. But generally speaking, it's from about as extreme as, uh, you know, one kilocalorie in equals... Um, uh, sorry, 100 kilocalories in equals about one kilocalorie out when you're talking about beef farming. Think about that inefficiency for a second. Let that sink in. It's terrifying. It's ludicrous. And um, when you think about skipping that process uh, and, and taking all those plants that we grow and giving them to people, that's efficiency, the likes of which you cannot ever think to, to, to dream of in, in animal agriculture. So this business of um, you know, the land we can possibly use to farm apart from animals, it really doesn't matter because we're already demonstrating our ability as a species to grow an enormous amount of protein. All we need to do is stop giving it to the 80 billion animals that we uh, that we that we feed it to. I think that's probably the key thing I would say. And, and also this narrative around um, plant based uh, or vegetarian diets are um, uh, you know, insufficient for human nutrition. They've been debunked. That that's flat earther stuff these days. There, there is no doubt at all that uh, a human can get everything they need from a plant-based diet. I mean, India has been vegetarian slash vegan since uh, you know records began. And uh, and and when we talk about some of these countries that have been predominantly plant-based um, having some health issues, I think Sam mentioned this. Um, that is that is uh, projecting an extremely basic view about a very complex and nuanced set of socioeconomic uh, um, factors, which all culminate in uh, the the end product of having um, a society with, uh, with with perhaps deficiencies in, in in different areas of health. So so I think it's it's myth to say that we can't get the nutrition we need, and you don't need to be Lewis Hamilton and his chef. Of course, um, but um, but 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 uh, that's definitely been proven by science as as, as myth now. Um, but you asked me to be quick, so I'll stop talking. Okay, I mean, <laughs> just on coming back at that. I mean, what about the point around for developmental issues for children? Uh, we're not at the stage yet where, at scale, at prices that people can afford in developing economies across the world, that, that, that there's access to the sort of products that can replicate the. Uh, developmental benefits of animal-based protein. Now, no doubt that might happen in the future, but I think, I mean, what, what is your, are you saying that right now that this stuff's available at scale for people in developing economies? Because it's not, is it? So I mean, they have no option right now. Well, well I mean, okay, well, sorry, I just want to say non-animal-based proteins for developmental purposes, for, that was the point that uh, Sam was, was making, um, as I understand it. This, you know, is, is there, it's not available at scale right now. So I guess, are you, I mean, what does the transition look like for for those for people in those situ that situation? So, so, so I do remain confused here because if you're saying that children in developing economies don't have ready access to chickpeas or lentils or other forms of extremely complete proteins when it comes to amino acid chains, I don't know why you'd say that because that's not true. 
if if you're asking um do does every child need an egg a day um to have uh, healthy bones teeth and 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 um brain function then i think i and and the scientific community would probably say that's nonsense i i don't think that um you know it's only it's only been since the sort of 50s that we've all become so normalized in in thinking that that eggs and meat and dairy are just available every day of the week um and so we have been um thriving for for quite some thousands of years without um uh such ready access to these animal proteins and like i said just to reiterate um children don't need an egg a day to be healthy and and there's no science to back that up whatsoever um you you, you can you can have as i said extremely complete amino acid chains uh from various um plant-based foods um without the need to um to, to, to go and take an egg Okay, look, thanks very much indeed for clarifying that. Um, all right, um, 40 questions, wow. Um, let's try and address um, as many of them as we can. Um, question on uh, the, the most liked question, uh, it's, it's slightly off topic, but I think we'll just touch on it briefly. Talking about food waste, I mean, that should be the priority, perhaps, in terms of uh, eliminating a lot of the, um, you know, the, the, the impact of the food sector. Where do you we sit on the issue of food waste and, how, and trying to uh, use that to um, eliminate or did lessen impacts. But again, brief answers. Sam, please. Yeah, so um, in the US, we do, uh, it's kind of a difference. You have to think about context of where we are in the world. But for um, developed countries, most food waste is happening at the post-production stage, right? It's happening at consumer level. Um, at retail and consumer level. So that's a huge opportunity. And it's something with the, the US Roundtable for Sustainable Beef that we actually have as a goal as part of our um, sustainability goals for the retail food service sector is how do we work together to minimize food waste. Um, our recent published um, life cycle assessment on US beef production also did an analysis looking at if we were to cut back food waste, we would actually have um, about a 10% decrease in the environmental footprint, as well as other footprints um, related to beef production, just from that single act of minimizing food waste. Um, and when you look at a global level, the issue becomes more of a pre-processing phase. We lose a lot of food. 40% of our food is actually lost in the fields before we can get it to harvest, right? Before we can get it to processing. So there's a huge opportunity there to leverage technology, innovation and support to the lower middle income regions to, to be able to get those products through to processing. Um, so those are huge areas where we will have a huge impact. If we can minimize food waste, we're already addressing a huge portion of our, of our hunger needs today. Thanks, Sam. Andy, Pierre, do you want to comment on that? Um, yeah, so, so food waste wise, and, and I'm so mindful that I'm going to start to sound like a really broken, boring record. <laughs> so forgive me all. But um, anyone with a preoccupation uh, with food waste needs to recognize the inefficiency of, of um, feeding 80 billion animals with perfectly good plant proteins, waiting for them to grow for months or years and expend and metabolize most of that good protein on just their existence and their grazing and their growth. And then uh, giving us an output of a fraction of the inputs in terms of meat or, or dairy. So I think if, if we're talking about food waste, we must also talk about the wastefulness and the inefficiency of, of the animal agricultural system. Because when you have inputs which so drastically dwarf outputs, that is wasteful. So I think it must fall under the umbrella of, of food waste in general.
I need to respond to this. Animals are not food waste. So the, the number of 80 billion animals that you refer to, out of that 80 billion, 76 billion are poultry, are chicken that weigh a kilo. So it's not fair to say you compare 75, uh, 76 billion animals that weigh one kilo against 8 billion animals that are called human species. So first of all, that. Secondly, the comparison to say that I feed on a kilocalorie basis, I feed an animal kilocalories and I only get kilocalories back, is just not correct because the reason why we have animal sourced food, whether it's dairy, eggs or meat, is not for the kilocalories. For the kilocalories, we can use a cheap commodity, plant-based material, absolutely. We need those animal sourced foods for the high nutrients, for the nutrients that are due to our evolutionary biology, highly bioavailable to us, as Samantha has already pointed out, and which the pro plant proteins are not. Is it possible to live as a vegetarian? Absolutely. Is that economically the right thing to do? No, because it is economically inefficient. So animals are not food waste. I'm not saying animals are food waste. Also, just to correct, I must just correct one thing. Um, there are only 33 billion chickens in the world. So that's just a, a, a off by a factor of um, more than double. Okay, I want to move on, please. I mean, there's a lot of questions on the, from the audience. Let's try and get through some of them. I appreciate that, um, as I said at the beginning, there's lots of strong views on every side of this debate, but I'd like to try and answer some of the questions from our audience. A question, Andy, a question for you. There's been a recent drop in sales. This comes from James Maddock Jones. Recent drop in sales in plant-based products and some companies are dropping their plant-based lines. What's the solution to that? How can that be overcome? So I think the main reason for the slowdown uh, last year in, in meat alternatives, and by the way, just one quick qualifier on this, what's been doing the rounds in the press is are the figures from uh, chilled retail in meat alternatives. They don't account for the growth in frozen and they don't in retail, which is a big sector, nearly as big as chilled. They also don't account for the growth in uh, the food service world. So basically all the restaurants, hotels, venues, they're only actually accounting for plant-based sales in one part of uh, one category. So that's the first thing. So actually, if you net it all out, it would most likely be in growth still. And just for comparison, between 2008 and 2019, uh, overall consumption is down 17% for meat, but it's up around, I don't know, something like uh, 300% for plant-based alternatives. So if you take a, a relatively midterm view, plant-based alternatives are um, skyrocketing, in, skyrocketing in demand, whereas meat in the UK, at least, and that's representative of a lot of European countries, demand is going down. Um, but as for, the, as for the reasons in chilled, there was an over-proliferation, I think, of brands into um, chilled meat-free during the kind of frenzy of excitement that we had in sort of 2019, 2020. And I think it led to um, products and brands coming into the space with, with quite low product quality. Um, and I think that it drove, all that excitement drove a lot of trial from flexitarians or just meat eaters. And I think that, that probably repelled quite a lot of those customers. Uh, and, and so um, what you're now seeing is, is quite a, aggressive consolidation from the retailers to go and cut all of those low performing products and brands, as well as um, probably the, the nutritionally less helpful brands as well. Uh, and I think then you asked about the sort of remedy. I think the remedy to that is basically what's being done, which is to consolidate to the very best brands and products so that the plant-based alternative sector can sort of fly its best flag uh, to, to, to the um, non-vegans who, who are sort of in, intriguing, uh, intrigued by the space and want to trial products. Um, I think that's probably the best fix, to be honest. Okay, thanks. Um, 
David Hollock, who I know is from BSI, uh, has made an interesting point. And he's saying that the debate shouldn't be around animals or plant-based food systems, but rather the best mix. And it, that reflects another couple of points that were being made uh, around the zero-sum game. So then the best mix on ensuring sustainable ecosystems, as, as that's something that, that we need. But he does point out there's a complex issue uh, and many moving parts. He talks about rangeland and grasslands being converted into milk and meat by herbivores and recycling nutrient and biodiversity, but grass-fed meat and milk rather than fed by grain, addressing, Andy, your legitimate point around uh, all the soil that's being fed to, to uh, animals. If that becomes less in the picture, perhaps that's a, a significant change. Uh, and it, David also points out that fertile soils can be used for um, you know, fruits and, and nuts and legumes and everything else that can be fed to humans. So what is your, the panel's view on that? Is in fact, you know, it's the kind of consciously thinking about the best use of each individual ecosystem and not necessarily using the uh, you know, intensively farmed um, proteins to feed them to, 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 to animals. It's more a question of moving away from that, thinking in terms of grass-fed, thinking in terms of more sustainable approach in that direction. Uh, Sam, what's your view on that? The round table, we like to really talk about optimizing production, right? Not maximizing. So it's not about getting as much as you can and squeezing every single ounce out of whatever you're doing to get your product um, and to maximize your product, because in doing that, you are not being sustainable, right? You have to prioritize not only the production and the efficiency, but you have to prioritize the land and your resources you're using. Um, and to kind of go back to that um, discussion around what we're feeding animals, right? So um, this is a study that was published a few years ago now by the FAO, but um, more than 85% of the feed that we provide to livestock is not in direct competition with humans. It's human inedible. So that includes cattle on the range land, grazing land, like I've mentioned, but it also includes um, you know, that intensive production system of feedlots is being able to utilize byproducts from things like plant-based production and byproducts from other human food production that can now go to those animals and they can leverage that feed as a way to, to upcycle those nutrients, right? And to provide us with more beef in a more efficient manner. Um, and I think when we get into the discussion of of greenhouse gas emissions and emissions intensity, you actually see the most efficient production from that standpoint happening when animals are not fully grass finished, but they're actually finished in a feed yard. Um, and to be clear, that's only about three to three to six months of an animal's 18 month life, right? Um, so they're spending a portion of their life getting fed uh, a more concentrated diet, which includes mostly byproducts from human consumption. Um, and they're able to most efficiently break down those byproducts into that high quality, nutritious animal source protein. Thanks, Sam. Andy, you want to come in? Yeah, so just a couple of things on this. I think, firstly, when we talk about, um, you know, it's all good for us to farm uh, billions of animals because um, of the soil health. It's actually a very cow-centric debate because pigs and chickens and other species that we eat, but predominantly pigs and chickens, do nothing for soil health. They actually take away and, and, and they harm a local water table and things like that. So, so we don't need to talk about soil health when we talk about um, chickens and pigs, which account for, an as Peer helpfully pointed out earlier, account for an enormous proportion of our protein uh, consumption. And moving on to cows, there's a sort of paradox here because... Um, the less intensive you go and the more grass fed you go, uh, the, the less 
uh, harmful to the environment um, beef farming gets. Still harmful, but but the less uh, harmful. Um, however, um, the stated goals of the uh, U.S. beef industry, which everybody knows, is to become more efficient and more profitable. That those are those are the preeminent aims, which are perfectly reasonable for any industry to have. But as soon as you pursue those aims you unfortunately start to move away extremely quickly from anything that could be considered low intensity and sustainable and good for soil health. Because of course, if you are um, using a more congested uh, farm uh, to try and be more efficient, um, then your uh, soil health will obviously go down due to overgrazing. Uh, and you'll also have biodiversity issues as well. So, so that's why I say it's a paradox. You can't really win. Uh, if you're talking about beef, uh, if you're talking about pork, and chickens, um, there's obviously no winning when it comes to soil health, clearly. Uh, and, and if you're talking about beef, there is uh, not winning, but there is uh, a softer blow to the environment. But you can't really have your cake and eat it because they need efficiency and they need intensity and profitability to be able to be a sustainable industry and to feed the billions of people that want these proteins. Um, so hopefully that explains my, my view on that. Um, I would also just ask one question to Sam, if I may. I don't know if, if the rules allow inter-panel questions. Um, but my, my question to you, Sam, was just on when you said that, um, uh, I think you said the majority, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you said the majority of US cattle are fed proteins which are human inedible. And my challenge to that is, is just that um, around 80% of the soy grown in the world um, is given to um, uh, cattle. And all of that soy is human edible, not inedible. Uh, and, and I suspect that, um, and you'll be the expert on this versus myself, but I suspect that uh, soy is, is an extremely prevalent protein fed to animals in the US. So I'm just wondering what you mean by human inedible as, as a just clarifier from my side. Sure, yeah. So uh, in US beef production, we actually um, do not feed a lot of soy. That, that happens in other animal sourced foods. Um, primarily uh, of all of the U.S. cropland, about 2% of that is corn grown and fed to cattle. Um, so corn is one of the primary uh, carbohydrates, right? Not a protein, a carbohydrate that we feed to cattle. And they're able to convert that, the microbes in their rumen are able to convert that to protein for the animal, right? So they take a carbohydrate, turn it into protein. Um, beyond that, the other things I mentioned, they're byproducts, right? So we produce a a lot of corn ethanol, right, in the United States. Byproducts of corn ethanol are distillered grains or dry distiller grains. So we feed that back to cattle too. So that kind of gets into this idea of circularity where we're able to leverage byproducts of other human needed things like alternative fuels, and then utilize our cattle herd to help kind of restore balance, right, to the system and be able to say, okay, we've got this waste product rather than letting it sit in a landfill and produce methane, let's put it into a cow, produce protein, have a byproduct of methane, but be able to leverage every ounce of what we're producing in the US to create food for a growing population. When you say corn, Sam, is it corn gluten meal or is it just corn? Because one fact you stated is not correct, which is that um, cows can't make protein. That's scientifically impossible. So, so they need protein um, to be fed in order to to, to then um, to be clear uh, I am a I didn't mention this I didn't give my background I'm a ruminant nutritionist by training you are right cows do not make protein but their microbes do that is exactly how we get protein from a carbohydrate 
to a protein in a cow is because of their microbes and their rumens. So that is their kind of superpower that they're able to take a food that is not a protein. It's a carbohydrate and through microbial fermentation, they produce protein and that's where they get their uptake of protein. So is it, is it corn uh, gluten meal or is it just corn that you, that the majority of cows are fed it in the U S distillered grains? It is pure corn and it is distillers grains. And the distillers grains, they have protein, right? To, to supplement the fact that corn doesn't have protein, much protein. Sure. But you're not going to eat distillers grains, right? It's a waste product. That no, no, I'm not, but I'm just challenging. I'm just saying they are fed protein in the mix to supplement because corn okay. doesn't have much protein. Thanks. Let's move back to the questions from the audience, please. This is perhaps, the, I, I, I'm enjoying the debate and it's great we're having this robust debate and I'm enjoying it. But let's, um, let me go, I'll go back to um, the, uh, back to the question from the audience. But a number of questions, Andy, a question for you. A number of people um, talking about the link between what they eat uh, and, and you know, the knowledge of what, what they eat. Do you think it's, a, it's, a, it's an issue from, from a, the kind of sort of products you're producing? Do you think they can, there's a, a greater disconnect? Do people understand what it is, that, where their food comes from? I mean, they, they, you know, a, steak in the, a steak in their plate, well, that comes from a cow. I mean, they, there's a kind of clear link. Do you feel that you need to kind of develop, is there a consumer awareness um, side to things from you to explain what it, why it is that what you produce looks like it, what it does uh, and it isn't what you might think it be to be? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's a lack of... Um, uh, sort of farm to plate uh, visibility across the entire food system, both in terms of plant base and in terms of uh, animal agriculture. I'll start with plant base, which is that uh, it's a really novel type of food that we make. Uh, and so I think that people, um, when there's when there's a lack of knowledge, that I think that gap is generally filled with um, uh, suspicion, skepticism, um, and worry which I think is perfectly natural human instinct. So, so yes, I think we absolutely need to do more uh, as an industry to educate our customers and beyond about how our food is made. Um, you know, for instance, most, most of our food is, is made using an extrusion process and, and the machines we buy are basically the same machines that um, more or less every pasta manufacturer on earth use. So the process is actually relatively similar to, um, to making pasta, which of course is a very familiar household good. If you ask a, uh, a man or lady on the street, how their pasture is made, I doubt they would say uh, using a high pressure extrusion line. Uh, they, they'd probably just be like, oh, it's pasta. <laughs> um, so, so I think that um, there definitely needs to be more to be, uh, there's more to be done. Um, and then on the animal side, you mentioned that people think, well, this is a steak and it comes from a cow. What I don't think they know, especially when it comes to areas like dairy as well, I don't think they understand the levels of um, objectification of the animals in terms of the cruelty. I don't think they know, for instance, in the US that 60% of dairy cows are tethered by the neck to posts so that uh, they're denied the most basic instincts that they have of moving around and grazing. I don't think they know that uh, the number of um, male cows which are born into the dairy system, um, which are almost immediately killed because they are basically a waste product. Uh, they can't be used to produce dairy. Um, I don't think they know uh, that 75% that uh, of the world's antibiotic supply is used for animals and that, that almost every animal they eat is, is, is laden in antibiotics. So I think there are visibility problems across like um, both the pro uh, plant-based proteins and the animal base. Okay, thanks, Andy. Uh, Pierre, sorry, you had your hand up. Pierre, please come in. Um, I just want to mention that here in the blog, I have answered some of the questions directly. So uh, before this whole shuts down, uh, you can maybe also get some answers directly in the blog. Um, 
Uh, and I also want to uh, absolutely confirm the notion of Andy. We need more visibility throughout the food system of what is actually happening. Uh, but I would hope that we that we do that visibility on the basis of uh, a fair distribution of scientific evidence and recent scientific evidence, because several of these numbers that you've just mentioned, Andy, are 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 neither fair nor recent. Um, a, a very quick point that I do want to make is I, I, I said it earlier. The way many the way we currently treat and keep animals is not the right way in many in many cases in many places, uh, and it must be improved. But that's not a reason to get rid of the animals. It is a call for improvement, and one of the improvements that is surely possible is that we create feed for the animals in a different way than we've done so far. So rather than feeding the animals primarily plant-based foods, we can, we can start feeding the animals on the basis of microorganisms, so from algae, from uh, insects, from uh, bacteria, and thereby feed the animals in such a way that they consume less plant-based production, which frees up resources in agriculture, and at the same time still provide the highly uh, nutritious animal-sourced foods for humanity. Okay, thanks. Thank you very much, Pierre. Uh, question, we've talked about um, the importance or the use of uh, byproduct of animal agriculture in terms of producing natural fertilizers. So we have a question talking about that and addressing that. What happens if we have no livestock, if the livestock are removed, Will there not be a suddenly be a significantly greater uh, reliance on artificial fertilizers, which of course come with a significant uh, greenhouse gas footprint? Sam, you raised fertilizers initially. Yeah, um, there. If we did not have livestock production, we would not have a natural fertilizer that we can be using in organic operations. It also then limits the amount of fertilizer available to us for crop production, right? And we do have to produce more um, synthetic fertilizer, which I'm sure many here um, can agree is quite problematic. And we've, we've seen a lot of issues around food security with a lack of fertilizer, right? Just even in recent years. Um, so by having animals that have a byproduct of manure, we're able to produce a natural fertilizer that, that does enhance the ability to even have crop production, period. Okay, um, Pierre, any comment on that? So at the moment, uh, the world's plant agriculture uses about 50% natural fertilizers and 50% uh, artificial fertilizers. And clearly these artificial fertilizers, uh, predominantly they're either taken out of mines or they're being converted from uh, uh, oil, mineral oils. Uh, this is clearly a non-sustainable uh, and non-circulatory source. So we, ideally speaking, we would rebalance the system towards the fact that we do not need uh, artificial fertilizers uh, and, and be reliant on natural fertilizers only. I have not seen any well-calculated global food system model that, that presents a thought-through way of of uh, how many more animals we would need in order to produce enough natural fertilizer to feed all the plant agriculture that we need, um, given that there is a lot of interdependence, interdependencies. This is not an easy calculation task to do, 
but uh, certainly somewhere in that area, the future has to lie that, that we probably need to increase the stock of animals for the, for the reason only in order to get, obtain enough natural fertilizer in, in order to be able to balance out the system without artificial fertilizers. Andy, do you want to comment quickly? Just quickly, because I'm certainly not a fertilizer expert, but my understanding is is that, uh, well, firstly, I partially agree with, with Pierre, which is extremely exciting. But um, we, we, we um, of course, there, there isn't enough animal-derived fertilizer at all relative to the number of animals, which tells you something given the number of animals we're, we're currently producing. But my understanding is that you can also have fertilizers which are natural, renewable from uh, sources like seaweed or uh, wood. What is it? Wood chip, I think. Uh, has been used by farmers. Um, there's also, of course, we're talking about this, the absolute epidemic of pesticide use as well, which is just devastating for um, ecosystems uh, with arable farming. So that, that that's probably, in my opinion, an even bigger problem. And, and I suppose to close on that, in, in my opinion, given that we're not even comprehensively using animal-based fertilizers at the moment, the argument that we need cows and we need all the resources that go into growing cows because of the fertilizer need, I mean, that's like saying we need coal mines because we we need all of the used shovels on the, on on eBay. I mean, it's ludicrous. It's, the output's not commensurate with the enormous inputs there. I think, and and whilst it might on occasion be a relatively helpful byproduct, I don't think it's a fundamental reason why we need to um, have you know hundreds of millions of, of cows in the US, for instance. Thanks, Andy. Um, right, I want to close. I want to actually, in closing, ask our panellists to comment on, uh, I think, a really interesting point from uh, Alfonso de Brito Canelas uh, on the Q&A. He asked what we're really looking at solving here, feeding the world without compromising on greenhouse gas emissions and climate impact. And he gets back to this, to the almost the zero-sum comment of earlier. It really doesn't have to be an either an either or narrative. Meat will play a role, but if meat production is generating high greenhouse gas emissions, surely there is a need to reduce significantly whilst not fully eliminating, whilst other plant-based alternatives continue to gain cost efficiencies and scale. Is that where we are? Is that the future? Is that what it looks like? Very quickly, uh, Pierre, you first. I, I think it has been amply shown, including in the recent IPCC report, that the statement that animal agriculture is a, is a large driver of uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions is essentially an accounting error. And if we account for these things properly, then the greenhouse gas impact is much, much, much smaller than is currently being purported. Uh, we don't need to worry about the greenhouse gas emission climate warming uh, aspect, because if we do the accounting right, then plant-based foods typically actually even have a higher climate impact than animal-based foods, animal-sourced foods have. I wish we had another hour to talk about that point, but um, we don't, sadly. We're coming to the end. Uh, Andy, a very quick comment, just thinking about, you know, is this sort of world that Alfonso was describing? Is that kind of where you think we might be going? Clearly, in the long term, I believe that meat has no role in our food system. But I think Alfonso is, is describing what I would probably call a transition. And I think that his point is absolutely right around the fact that animal agriculture has already achieved a vast majority of economies of scale and then some, given the intensity of some farms around the world. But plant-based alternatives, whether they're meat alternatives like we make or other, other sorts of uh, uh, plant-based alternatives like tofu, and none of them have actually reached economies of scale because the demand historically has not been sufficient to drive those decreases in cost and increases in efficiency. So yeah, I, I, I agree 
that necessarily, unfortunately, animals will have to play a role. And they're not all going to just disappear in a puff overnight, sadly. But yes, I agree with his uh, statements. And, and I would just conclude by saying, for the sake of uh, our audience, that Piers' comments earlier about we don't need to worry about the uh, emissions from animal agriculture. In my opinion, that puts him at odds with the vast majority of the scientific community globally, which is fine. But I would say that in my strong opinion, that's a very, very misleading uh, statement. All right. Thank you. Uh, as I said, I wish we had another hour to discuss that, but we don't. Sure. Sam, for you then, um, you know, do you see this sort of transition? I mean, I know you've been talking about, obviously, you're going to say that um, beef's going to be part of that. But do you recognise that there is a sort of movement here that we are looking at how we impact into our diets and that it's going to, there is a, there is a transition happening. There's a, there's a journey, there's a, a direction of travel. I would just kind of say, as I already mentioned, right, we really focus on how do we optimize, not maximize. I think there's a role for both animal source and plant source proteins, and there needs to be because at the end of the day, we have a global population that a significant portion is already, right, malnourished or undernourished or poorly nourished. There is an opportunity for both here. Um, and I think that we, we need to move forward thinking about how do we um, continue to advance in sustainable production across all of these scales, right? Thanks very much. I really appreciate our panel's insights today. As I said at the start, there are some strong views on either side and many sides. Thank you for hearing them. Thank you for, for discussing them in an atmosphere of respectful discussion. So thanks very much indeed. If you'd like to continue the, the discussion, then please join us at the Innovation Forum Future of Food US Conference in Minneapolis on 31st of May and 1st of June. Sam's going to be there, I think. All details are on the Innovation Forum website. We can also find our free podcasts, webinars and other insights. Look out also for the next in our big debate series, which will be on eliminating deforestation and some of the unintended consequences in play there. It's another issue where there'll be lots of different views, I'm sure. For now, I hope you've enjoyed this webinar. I've been Welsh. Thank you for joining us and goodbye. <laughs>